Welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always, I am joined by three people who also returned to London in the spring of 1926 for the general strike. Angelina Stanford, <laughs> Tim McIntosh, and our guest, Andrew Kern. How's it going? Uh, it's not well, going well for Andrew. He uh, just popped to start yeah. the show. And it was really hard for me to make it today with the strike and all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you yeah. had almost 100 years, brutal. Angelina. It took every second. <laughs> So, uh, so how's it going? I mean, we were just talking about the weather and ticks and being sick, but otherwise, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going better well, than it was. I'll say that it's going a lot better. Well, Angelina, do you want to describe to our audience the sort of malady that you were suffering during no. the last week? Why no. would I want to be that person? Are you, you're asking me to turn into my 80-year-old grandmother. I had a little procedure last week. It's fine. <laughs> Would you mind taking a look at it? Would you mind taking a look at it? I can't see it from where I'm sitting. Oh, man. <laughs> it's on my heel. I can't I can't see it from where I'm sitting. Well, Tim, how are your maladies? My maladies have all, like dried up and gone away since summer began in lovely Oregon. It is, I mean, it, it could not be more beautiful. It's what? breezy. The track and field crowds have dissipated along with all of the college students from the University of Oregon. So it reduces the population of the city by probably 60%. So literally driving over to record today, Usually it's, you know, 13-minute drive. I think I made it in eight minutes, something like that, because everything's just wide open. Like my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we've concluded about you? Is This show is not... I feel like we've concluded something different about you over the course of doing this show. (laughs) I thought that if we had taken nothing away from the course of this show, is that Tim's heart is wide open. Tim's heart is wide open. That is is what I say to myself every night as I go to sleep. That is the one thought. All right, well, that's weird. So we are uh, we are here to talk about Brideshead Revisited. We are going to talk about Chapter 8. We are over halfway through the book. How does that make you feel, Tim? How does that make your wide open heart feel that we are over halfway through Brideshead Revisited now? My heart could be no more wide open, but if it could, it would be. So you went that you went that direction then. Okay. So uh, we're we're here to talk about chapter eight. Um, but first, we need to say a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, this show is going to be the first one of July. So our sponsor for this month is well, it's the same sponsor as last month, the oh. Scola Academy. <laughs> that guy again? Yeah, yeah. So, That's cool. Hey, Tim. Hey. Supposing you had a ninth to twelfth grade student, do you think that student could benefit from an engaging seminar style great books course that would help him earn him or her earn two high school credits? David, that sounds terrific. Do you think that tell you would, me, please you, tell me more? Do you think that that particular child would perhaps enjoy learning from a a uh, highly qualified uh, professor who has a deep love for the classics? I would certainly hope so. If if the student can't learn in that situation, it's probably the professor's fault. <laughs> well, wow! So bold I, ha- I have this idea here. Um, what if you were to teach such a course? I would be delighted. 
Okay, let's do it then. How about you oh, do, it, do it? How about you do it through Scully Academy then? Because honestly, I don't want to do it, so I'm gonna let them do it <laughs> for you. So I love how you two just make things happen. I know it just happens right then and there, right? So uh, I'm thinking maybe you should offer four uh, high school grade books courses live online at Scully Academy starting this fall. In what in what sort of subjects, David? Well, I don't know. Why don't you just tell us right now what you think you might want to teach? Off the top of my head, maybe ancient Greek and Roman literature and history. I don't know, medieval and Renaissance literature and history. Okay, so far we're... History. I, yeah, I think we're on the same, same page right now. Okay. You're thinking the same thing? Yeah, World yeah. history and literature, and finally, let's round it off, since we've been talking about British literature so much during Close Reads, maybe British and American literature and history? All right, sounds good. So where could somebody learn more about these classes that you're going to do, that we've just decided that you're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> let's post something on scoleacademy.com. Now, how would you spell that? Uh, let's go with, let's make it up as we go along here. S-C-H-O-L-E. How about that? That sounds wonderful. Okay, so scoleacademy.com. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, scoleacademy.com is by Classical Academic Press. And um, we did not just make any of this up on the spot for those of you who are new to close <laughs> reads and don't understand our sense of humor. Uh, Tim is doing some courses. I don't know, is that humor? Maybe it's not really humor. Uh, Tim is doing some courses through Scully Academy this fall, and you can learn uh, more about them, as we said, at scolaacademy.com, where his mug is plastered on the front page. Um, so head over there. Thanks to Scully Academy and Classical Academic Press for sponsoring Close Reads this month. Uh, we're, as always, grateful to be partnering with them, and they are good and loyal friends of ours. So um, we're, like I said, we're happy to be, to be uh, working with them and making Close Reads happen. Um, All right, now I have to scold you guys. I have to scold you guys. I, I think so highly of classical academic press, and I think so highly of Institute for Excellence in Writing, and I think so highly of Tim, and you guys just made light of the whole thing. That's not how you advertise. Now redo that whole discussion with dignity. How do you, how do you advertise it? How do you advertise it, Andrew? With dignity, man. You make, them, you, make them, you make them look good like they should look. You oh, say, they... Tim, you are an honorable man. Something like that. I don't know how to advertise. You guys are the marketing department. So None of us know how to advertise. That's I'm how we're like 95% sure that if they were looking for that kind of advertising, they would not have chosen to do it on close reads. They might <laughs> I feel like the audience here already knows that Tim is an honorable man. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and predict that. That's what we've determined. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. what they show and Scole, his show. And Scole and C-A-P-N-I-E-W, they all know how great they are. They don't need to be defended. That's what you're telling me? Yeah, I wouldn't worry no, about it. No, we know our audience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... This is All the, right. Well, it, I'm just concerned about the reputation of those organizations that are a good name is rather to be chosen than what was it? A great glass of wine, great riches. Oh, I was going to. I've heard that rendering of the proverb. Are you following? I want that one. I was going to say great riches makes sense, but I'm not sure that I agree with the with it. If it's great, <laughs> if it's a great bottle of wine. Um. <laughs> Well, we are here to talk about chapter eight, as I've said, and chapter eight is the last chapter in part one, if you have the original, you know, version. If you're listening to the one that Jeremy Irons read for Audible, then it is in part two rather than part three, and I don't know when part three begins, but if you're using the, the it's, original... It's chapter three. It's part two, chapter three. Okay. Is it and the then the next chapter begins part three. Okay. 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 Yeah. 
So ours starts part two in the next <clears throat> chapter. Um, in this chapter, uh, Charles goes off hunting for Sebastian. Um, Lady Marchmain dies, and um, Charles has a fascinating conversation with Cordelia. Um, well, don't forget about the beginning. I feel like that's important, too. The search for meaning in their lives, these young men, right? They're all going to join the military. They try to find a cause. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so comical, because it's a pathetic cause. It turns out to be nothing. But they want a cause so bad, right? Well, I was just about to say, Angelina. But I'm sorry. before <laughs> that, we should probably talk about the beginning of the chapter. My bad. <laughs> I'm just eager. I liked this chapter a lot. So, so Angelina... Uh, would you like to talk about these young men and their search for meaning? That's why they chose to join the military and all that. Is that I think is, I so? Said that's it. is that where you want to? Is that what you want to talk about? You want to? Okay, carry that's on. That's what I primarily want to talk about. I'm excited about a different well, scene. Okay, but, I, why? I, but I did think it was noteworthy that he that that this is included in here. Um, in this particular chapter. Yeah. What? Why do you 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 mentioned that this is you just you said some you said I really like this chapter which. Uh, not that you didn't like the other chapters, but you did, haven't said that every time we've recorded. So I'm curious, is there something about this chapter that you liked better than, say, the previous chapter or other what chapters? I found just, you know, it's always strange to read for this show as opposed to just reading in my normal life, right? Because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to trace threads and, and things that we've talked about. And we've talked so much about this modern versus medieval thing. And, and I thought, just, well, gosh. And of course, Tim... Tim laid down an argument. Yes, last and I week. can't wait to see that. But yeah. um, the chapter is structured very brilliantly. You know, this is unusual to have so many different scenes in one chapter. He keeps doing that, right? Especially one of the shorter layers. chapters. Yeah, so many, so many layers, so many scenes, and uh, but but the thing that struck me was the doctor versus the monk as as such a brilliant illustration of modernity versus the medieval perspective and in it's not just i mean he does do scientific the modern guy is scientific but more than that the the the, the modern man is reductionist he's reductionist in the way that he thinks about his role and sebastian and you know the disease, the illness, and I, I loved that the, the sort of counterpoint between the doctor and the monk, and I especially loved that Charles kept underestimating the monk, right? Thinking the monk is simple and a buffoon and just ignorant, naive. Doesn't the poor monk? He just doesn't understand. And but the monk does understand, and Charles is surprised that the monk is not ignorant. He just has a different understanding. Of, of what's happening to Sebastian. He, he he talks about Sebastian's happiness and sadness, and the doctor's talking about it in a much more deliberately reduction. How does Walt put it, that he's taking pride in leading out all the inessentials of the conversation? That, the monk, that, that the monk is the taking pride of that. No, the doctor. The doctor. Yeah, no, that's, what doctor. that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that what was just that on, Angelina? What page is that on? to me. Let me find it. Well, so this is kind of an odd question to ask for this show. Um, And I wouldn't do this in a classroom, probably. Um, 2.13, Tim. Thank you. But I'm curious from each of you if there is a particular line in this chapter that you think most represents the chapter for you. Mm. Like for the thing that the the, the line that stands out the most to you in this chapter. Um, And like I said, I don't know that I would do this in a classroom. I'm, you know, it's kind of like asking for blues, which I, you know, like the quotes you like, which I know Angelina doesn't like when I do. But in this case, I'm curious, just from a thematic perspective, if we have any commonality in our choices. 
Gosh, I don't know if there's one line. I did mark all the all the times that Wall points out. I guess it's Charles's thoughts, but um, like Morocco seems up to date and modern, but it's really not, mm-hmm. right? So Sebastian is actually choosing to retreat to a more ancient world. Um, oh. And then the same thing with the hospital is in between the old and the new towns. I just I kept hearing that echo again and again. The old world, the new world. Sebastian's literally in between them. <laughs> Well, and that goes back to what we were talking about way at the beginning of these the, of the book. Um, the, all these juxtapositions, right? That the book just constantly... I mean, that's where tension comes from in any story. But there's just so often there's these juxtapositions, these dichotomies that are presented that Charles seems to always be stuck in between. Like he's being... So can I... There's a tension on this Sorry. thread that he's yeah. kind of stuck on. Yeah, go ahead. Correct. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. On. And, and so I want to suggest that not only is it juxtaposed, juxtaposed, <laughs> juxtaposed right up against I like that each better. other, but it's, yeah, juxtaposed also at the beginning and the end of the chapter, um, because there's a lot of movement in this chapter, as Angelina pointed out. And mm. so it begins with... Like, like, and you mean Charles physical, you mean like actual physical yeah, narrative physical movement. movement, yeah. Not just between ideas, but... So it begins... The, the first words are, I returned, right? I returned to London. Well, it was on page 169 in our book that he left, Ride said, really. Um, and he says, I have left behind illusion, right? So mm-hmm. that's the last he's been with these people. And then he says, I returned to London in the spring, but not to see the, the flights, but for the general strike. Okay. Now, you asked for one sentence, and I'm, I'm bifurcating and saying I think there's two. One's at the beginning of the chapter, one's at the end. And here's my definitive chapter sentence on page 201. We were joined by a Belgian futurist who lived under the, I think, assumed name of Jean de Brizac Lamont and claimed the right to bear arms in any battle, anywhere, against the lower classes. Okay, and then on page 220, at the top, Cordelia speaking, and she says, They've closed the chapel at Brightside. Oh, yes. I think, so I, I think those are the two framework um, lines. The, notice it's a Belgian futurist with an assumed name. Very funny character who gets knocked out by a wom- widow woman with a flower pot later in the chapter. Can, can you unpack that a little then, more for people who might not understand? So, Andrew, is it that emphasis on the futurist and it's the past that's closing at Brideshead. Was yeah, and was there something specific about the the idea of a Belgian futurist that because I might not be familiar with that with what you're with the idea of the Belgian futurist um, in particular. Well the only thing I can say about Belgium is that that's where Germany marched through the to begin World War One, but I don't know if there's any particular significance to Belgium. Okay. okay. It's the, well, there's so many things come together in that sentence though. Right. There's there's the whole emptiness. Here's what I assume. He says, I think the assumed name. So this guy makes up a name. And what he wants to do is is fight against the lower classes. Now, he he has a really funny line that I had to look up to get the humor of on page 202 when they're at the bar and you got the Cambridge students and the other sort of. Um, police recruits, of which, by the way, there were over 200,000 of these special constables recruited for this wow. general strike. Hmm. Yeah. not They weren't all in the Café Royale, but there were a bunch of them there in the Café <laughs> Royale against the Cambridge students who were... And Transport House, 
is the is the building that the um, the trade union met at. So the Cambridge students were running messages for Transport House, and the special constables were basically the other side. They were they were to, to maintain peace, right? And you've also got the upper class and the lower class going on, and they they're about to have a fight. But instead, be, I love the way he puts it. Now and then, one or other party would shout provocatively over the shoulder. But it is hard to come into serious conflict back to back. <laughs> and the affair ended with their giving each other tall glasses of lager beer. So, you know, they're, they're making noise. Is what Angelina said earlier, there's all this emptiness. There's a search for meaning that ends in drinking beer. Um, they, can't, they can't even raise to the level of conflict. And so then, so then he says, Jean whatever, Jean de Brizac Lamotte says, you should have been in Budapest when Horthy marched in, said Jean. Jean, that was politics. Well, I looked that up, too. And what that was was an empty gesture. Um, the guy ruled Belgium, I mean, uh, um, Hungary for 24 years, but he marched into Budapest as a pigeon, as a, as a tool of the British, to oversimplify and he was driving out the Bolsheviks because Bulgaria or Hungary had become a, um, a Bolshevik republic for about six months. And he marched in to something already accomplished. But he did it with great ceremony and everything. And that guy's going, that was politics. Right? It's that emptiness that here's a futurist looking to the past, trying to put down the, the common people. And it's and it's all shadowy. It's, it doesn't. We don't even know if it's his real name. Right. I don't know if Wall intended this, but I can tell you something about Belgium, which I think actually really fits the theme of, of what we've been talking about, the whole modern experiment and its failure. Uh, Belgium. Belgium was created in in. Gosh, I, the, a very intense modern moment, right, where we're going to redraw the map to create world peace. This happens in the years leading up to World War I. So they just draw a big circle and they create this entity, Belgium. And they ignore tradition, ethnicity, religious ties, um, all of the things that made a people a people. And this is going to be a geopolitical union. Um, that's why to this day there are three languages spoken in Belgium, French, German, and Flemish. <clears throat> because <laughs> it's three different countries that they just drew a circle on the map and said, now you're one country and now you're going to be this buffer zone and this buffer zone is going to create peace. Ironically, of course, it has the opposite effect because that becomes the place that they all fight over. Um, because Germany wants the German Belgium back, so it's it's the failed it's a failed experiment of modernity. So it is interesting that he's a Belgium futurist. And to deepen the irony, the the king of Belgium, there was a king, right? <laughs> and when the Germans marched through Belgium, and they, they had no chance. I mean, the, the Germans were going to wipe them out. Um, when the the king of Belgium got up to give a speech to his people to say we're going to resist. You know what he quoted? No. Oh, no. Julius Caesar. The <sighs> opening of the Gallic Wars when when Julius Caesar says the bravest of all the Gauls are the Belgae. He doesn't go on and say that the reason they're the bravest is because they're they're least civilized or because they're far from our <laughs> Roman merchants. But he quotes that the bravest of all <laughs> are the Belgae, which is where they get their name, of course. So, yeah, it is fascinating that it's the Belgian futurist defending monarchy and Belgium being an artificial country. And I think that's the whole thing that Wa is wrestling with, making us wrestle with, is 
is whether there's any there there. Yeah, the artificiality well, yeah. of modern. And I love that. I love that you tied that into the closing of the chapel because I also marked that passage as being just wow. It's something I'm going to think about a long time. I think because what make makes the that. chapel the chapel is the transcendent reality, the sacrament, right? And so once they take that out, it's just how did he put it? Let me let me find it. Like how does Cordelia Chap- put it? Yeah. Oh, it's just an oddly decorated room now. Right. Right. And I mean, that's brilliant. But then the line that stuck out for me is that when they took it out, she says, as though from now on, it was always to be Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I most of them that too. Um, that's actually, it was really odd that we ran into this line because that's something I wrote about two months ago in my journal, um, this idea of what if it was always Good Friday and never Easter? Yeah. Um, like winter right. and never so Christmas? Yeah, Exactly. Angelina, do you know that that there's a there's a quote that I've got in my commonplace notebook from it's Hegel. No, it doesn't sound like Hegel, so I can't absolutely confirm the veracity of the quote. But the quote is, "The Enlightenment is Good Friday without Easter Sunday." Did you put that on oh. Facebook? Is this where I got that from? I, I, I might have under the Gutenberg Facebook page. Okay, maybe so. Maybe I read that and wrote it down. And, and I've I could, been thinking about whether or not that's a metaphor for modernity, so I think that that's exactly right. We are, we are living he, in Good Friday. My, what I recall about that quote is that it was a reference to the kind of like suspicion of the supernatural that comes with the resurrection. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where the, I mentally place that quote um Uh, but it might apply because because good friday there's nothing really supernatural happening the moment the supernatural moment which is the thing that the enlightenment is so suspicious about that happens at the resurrection that's where i think the quote is on earth yeah yeah so hey tim hey can i can i put in a request please i love the way you read would you, with your white space reading approach and, and you know, melodrama, not melodrama, just sound drama. Yeah, it's melodrama. Would you mind reading, <laughs> would you mind reading that paragraph? Uh, they close the chapter that Bride said? Oh, yeah. It's 220 two in ours, yeah. Tim. Sure, I'll read and, it. And while you do, while you do, I want to ask this question. The Catholics among us are going to know exactly what's going on here, just as Cordelia does, but Charles doesn't. And then, you know, she mentions the Tenebrae, but there's something... I want to, what's happening here, obviously, is that the the, the ritual of closing the chapel is taking place, but there's some details in here that are really significant. So if you don't mind reading it, and then when you're done, I want to just make a couple comments, and then I'll try to be a little more quiet. So this is Julia to Charles. No, Cordelia. It's it's Cordelia. Cordelia, excuse me, to Charles. Um, They've closed the chapel at Brideshead, Bridey and the Bishop. Mummy's requiem was the last mass said there, and she was buried. The, after she was buried, the priest came in. I was there alone. I don't think he saw me, and took out the altar stone and put it in his bag. Then he burned the wads of wool with the holy oil on them and threw the ash out. He emptied the holy water stoop and blew out the candle in the sanctuary and left the tabernacle open and empty, as though from now on it was always to be Good Friday. I suppose none of this makes any sense to you, Charles, poor agnostic. I stayed there till he was gone, and then, suddenly, there wasn't any chapel anymore. 
just an oddly decorated room. I can't tell you what it felt like. You've never been to Tenenbrah, have you? Is that how it says in yours? I have you? Mine my says, says, I suppose. Oh, no. Why did I say it that way? It says, I suppose. I just ad-libbed. <laughs> just <laughs> after he buttered you up for your reading. I know. He did. He did. Well, go ahead and read that next. I'll say never, and then you read the next one. Never. Well, if you had known, uh, well, if you hadn't known what the Jews felt about their temple, well, Moto. Read it again, Tim. Come on, we're I counting know, you're on killing you. It, Tim. I'm <laughs> counting on you, the professional Hamlet. Come on. I'm intimidated by the looming Latin. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> well, if you hadn't known what the Jews felt about their temple. No, 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 no. You're oh, not reading it, man. If you oh, had, you're guessing. No. <laughs> I am sorry. David, cut all this out. Cut all this out, David. No <laughs> way. No, leave it. Leave it. <laughs> they have to know the close reads gods are fallible. <laughs> what they From have now on, I'm calling Tim Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> what they have to know is that it takes a bunch of aud- it takes a bunch of rehearsing before the play actually begins. Exactly. Exactly. Just like just like Waz writing, right? He didn't. He didn't form these sentences first draft. But anyway, go on. I don't Bye. know. He might have formed this sentence first draft. Well, if you had, you'd know what the Jews felt about their temple. Quomodo sedet sola civitas. It's a beautiful chant. You ought to go once just to hear it. Still trying to convert me, Cordelia. So I, I wanted to. The reason this is so important is because of the themes that we've been talking about, but also because the first time I read this book, at least, maybe this first two or three, I'd get to the end, and I couldn't understand it. And I'm not going to give anything away, except to say that if anybody wants to understand the end, you have to remember this paragraph. This, this, they've closed the chapel at Brideshead. Because in the middle of it, it says, very physical, he emptied the holy water stoop, and blew out the lamp in the sanctuary and left the tabernacle open and empty. Now, the Catholics know that that's not talking about the whole building. That's talking about the little um, box. All, um, okay, there's the altar up front, and then there's a, an ark, a little box on the altar that is the tabernacle. And in that is the host. And, and there's a candle, right? Now, Catholics don't need to correct me on any details I get wrong here. But as long as the candle is lit in there, you have a chapel. Hmm. Like the Shekinah glory, right? Hmm. It's, in the, it's, in a little, it's in a little box on the altar. But if you blow out that candle, that's part of the liturgy. That is the moment when this is no longer a church. This is no longer a holy place. Right? And so when, when, he puts, when she quotes the, the Latin... That's Lamentations 1-1. How lonely fits the city. And it's Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. And Tenebrae is a, a whole service that's done, I think, on, I think it's all day, it's, it's Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and I think Saturday. I think all of that is included in it. Now, again, I'm subject to correction on, on the details, but it's the whole... It's it's the whole um, playing out of or repeating of commemorating at least the the experience of the crucifixion, and then because there's a candle in there still, 
you're looking to you're looking to the resurrection. Okay, but if you blow out the lamp and then you leave the tabernacle open and empty, they do that on Good Friday. They they open the tabernacle on Good Friday, but on Sunday they close it again. Is my understanding, and so the experience of entering into Christ's suffering and the experience of looking to the resurrection is merged here with an artistic experience where the whole meaning of the work of art is lost when the flame goes out. And so he, he compares it, she compares it rather to the Jewish temple when God's glory is gone, or in this case, when, when um, the temple is actually destroyed. And he says, if you knew that, if you knew what the Jews felt about their temple, you know, then you'd know. Now, it's interesting. She ends by saying you ought to go once just to hear it. And again, not a spoiler, but he does hear it. He mentions hearing it while he's in South America. On page 237, he indicates that he had, he had heard it. So artistically, what we're looking at here is a universe without meaning. And spiritually, we're looking at a cosmos without meaning. And I think we're, we're seeing Ryder take a step toward his conversion in the sense that he's still a pagan. Okay, that's something that, that, that uh, comes out in his conversation with Cordelia. He's still a pagan. His first love is beauty. His ultimate love is beauty, not God, but beauty itself. And that's not going to sustain him because without God, the tabernacle of beauty is a tabernacle with a put-out candle. And that's what, that's what this, this is, um, that's what was getting at here, I think, at least in part. She is watching the glory of the Lord depart from the temple, and he can't even understand what's happening. And meanwhile, you got a Belgian futurist getting conked by a widow with a flower pot because he's looking for meaning with an artificial name. It seems like throughout the entire chapter, there's these these references to things that are incomplete or being emptied mm. or only mm-hmm. partially full. So even directly opposite mm. there, you get the reference to um, Cordelia describing her mother, right? Um, and mm. she she calls her saintly, but she wasn't a saint. And then you mm-hmm. get you obviously you get what you're saying about the church. You get the you get the um, that the emptying of the house and then the house being torn down, the, not the church house, but the the one they're going to turn, yeah, they're turn it into yeah. apart, apartments. Um, and you get, um, huh? You get. I the, hadn't drawn that comparison. There's another one too. Um, well, Sebastian himself has become an yeah, empty tabernacle. Yeah, mm-hmm, Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, and but even in this chapter, you see some positives about Sebastian. So it's these. Um, I mean, it's these juxtapositions again, but it's this incompleteness, um, mm-hmm. empty. It's not thing. It's not things that are like necessarily fully empty, but there's like some really deep truth at, or meaning at the center of things that is that is leaving that is lacking and therefore leaving them incomplete, like Sebastian or like the flame, the candle being removed from the from the chapel, or you know. And, and I think we see that you, you saw that throughout the entirety of uh, Lady Marchmain's appearances in the book where she's there's something something missing there um right and the, the question i need to ask you guys 
Well, hold on. Well, Angelina, what did you say? Well, her death is part of that too, right? The past, it's the passing away of things. And and I thought it was, it was almost a throwaway line, but I thought flame it was so out. interesting. Yeah, the flame has gone out of the family now too, right? With her death. But what, what I thought was so interesting with the, the pulling down of March Main House is that they're going to build these modern apartments and Rex wants to move Julia into the penthouse. And Cordelia yeah, right. says, you know, he, well, he thought she'd want to still be connected to the house. And it's just, and of course, Julia's offended. It's so, but modern man cannot grasp what it is that's lost. Like he really thinks, no, I'm keeping you in touch with your past. We'll just build apartments and we'll live in the apartment on your ancestral grounds, and it'll be great. You know, he can't grasp why she would have a problem with that. He doesn't feel the loss. An entire, yeah, exactly. We've developed an entire artistic uh, theory to govern our culture based on the idea that there is no there there, that there is no flame in the tabernacle. Right, so there's no logos. An artist isn't trying to express a logos; he's trying to express himself. And that's what Belgium represents too. There's no there there. We can create a country. We could ignore mm. historical ties. So or, World War or, One was preceded and followed by by these creations of artificial countries. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe it's not that there's no there there so much as you ignore the there that's there. It's irrelevant. Yeah, but yeah. if the flame is blown it's out, the, there's it's no an flame, inessential right? detail. That's yeah, that's true. That's how we look at. That's how we do education, for example. You know, is is the resurrected Christ part of a lesson? That shouldn't be a hard question to answer, but it is because we don't think about it. I have a different question, though. Can I ask a, a more textual question here? <coughs> Yes, please. Or, or, or did you guys want to pursue that more? No, I'm good. So after Cordelia says that about Ma, Ma Marchman on page 221. Oh, about being a, not being a saint? Yeah, there's only two people called Ma in the whole book. Did you catch that? And I think it's Rex calls Ma Marchman Ma. But did you guys catch who the other person called Ma is? No. Oh, the lady at the, the madam, right? Yeah. yeah. I forgot the name of the place really that they go to, but yeah. To oh, that is interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. But anyway, here, here's, here's Charles' response to what Cordelia says. I heard almost the same thing once before from someone very different. I don't know what he's talking about. Okay, I didn't we've either. Got, I was in, hoping in y'all the, would tell me. Yeah, that's on my yeah, list of let, questions. Let me think. Okay, because in this chapter, we see her die, and we see a whole bunch of commentary on her. At the beginning of the chapter, Blanche is talking about her, Antoine, Anthony, Tony, whatever. He's talking about her. Then, of course, Sebastian, he goes to see Sebastian, and she calls her, he calls her, rather, a femme fatale who kills by touching. That's what I think and then we about, get to, Andrew. It could be, but help me understand the connection then. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read the line on 214 that you just alluded to. Poor mummy. This is Sebastian talking to Charles. Poor mummy. She really was a femme fatale, wasn't she? She killed at a touch. And then Cordelia says, well, you see she was saintly, but she wasn't a saint. No one could really hate a saint, could they? They can't really hate God either. When they want to hate him and his saints, they have to find something like themselves and pretend it's God and hate that. I suppose you think that's all bosh. I mean, it's, it's, 
Charles even admits in the next line, it's something like that. I heard all the almost the same thing once before from someone very different. I kind of think that's what Sebastian did with his mom. I mean, he granted she wasn't a saint, but he kind of put something on her because uh, really it was about his relationship with God. But he made his mom kind of like the central issue in that fight. On page 205, Blanche does the same thing. The Marchioness has been a positive pest ever since I came to London, trying to make me to get into touch with them. And then he, he says, I wish I could do that Norman thing he does, but what a time that poor woman's having. It only <laughs> shows there's some justice in life. Right, so, you know, all her suffering is, is just because of her children. So, you know, is, is that the same? Is Blanche doing the same thing? But are they saying what Cordelia is saying? Are they what saying what Cordelia is saying? Even? Yeah, and what part of what Cordelia is saying is, is Charles saying he heard before? Maybe, yeah, maybe I didn't a, know maybe what a, that was referencing. Maybe the thing to do then is to is to make me be quiet and you guys go through this chapter <laughs> and talk about the really important stuff because I mean the thematics are fun but the but the the really important stuff in this chapter is the discussion with with uh, the experience in London and then the discussion with with Blanche and the discussion with Sebastian and going to El, uh, to Morocco and then coming back to talk to Brad you know there's there's all these places and stuff that matter. Well, we have about 25 minutes tops. We definitely want to cover the hospital scene and and the conversation with Sebastian. I mean, I hope we're going to look at that. I hope so, too. I'll just say this much so that I can really feel like I'm not totally interfering. (laughs) But I do think that that's where Sebastian sort of, you could say he's hit bottom, but it's also where he seems to get redemption. And yeah. He is. Charles even says that I missed the key. Mm-hmm. He, he told me the key to understand him, and I missed it. I remember it now, but I missed it then. That that couple of sentences is so so well done and so profound. This is two fifteen. I mean, just he's observing his own lack of observation at the time, and ah, oh, it's so good. Someone made Which the indicates point, a double conversion, doesn't it? Yes. Right. Now he has eyes to see what he should have seen then. He was blind then. But someone on the Facebook page made made this comment um, connecting how we've been talking about the multiple levels of perspective going on at the same time. They made that connection to medieval art, and they connected it back to an earlier conversation we had had on the show about medieval art and its deliberate use of multiple perspectives, trying to show that all these things are happening at the same time. So mm. that would mean that even the very structure of the novel, what Waugh is doing, is a callback to a more medieval understanding of reality. Did you, did you catch That's the, wonderful. Did you catch, catch the direct reference to perspective in the chapter? No, when, when he's painting. Yeah, on two eighteen, he he's painting, and it says, um, "I'll read the paragraph before because I think it's really uh, telling, revealing." I began in the long drawing room, for they were anxious to shift and shift the furniture which had stood there since it was built. It was a long, elaborate, symmetrical atom room with two bays of windows opening into Green Park. 
The light streaming in from the west on the afternoon when I began to paint there was fresh green from the young trees outside. I had the perspective set out in pencil and the detail carefully placed. I held back from, from painting like a diver on the water's edge. Once I found myself uh, buoyed and exhilarated. Hey, by the way, how do you pronounce that word? Bethany and I have this debate. Is it buoy or buoyed? I would have said buoy. Buoyed and exhilarated. I would have said buoyed. So do you say buoyancy or buoyancy? Oh, English is weird. It doesn't have to be consistent. (laughs) No, I know. I'm just wondering because Bethany and I are having this debate. I say buoyancy. And Tim, you say... Tim, what do you say? Buoyancy? I say say it the way that you said it, David. Buoyancy. Okay. Yeah. Buoyed would be... Buoyed, just B-O-Y-E-D. That would be my Midwestern pronunciation. (laughs) <laughs> but the void, the, the bringing in something of the U would be more of a European pronunciation for sure and probably mm-hmm. most places in America, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Well, anyway, so he goes on. I was normally a slow and deliberate painter. That afternoon and all next day and the day after I worked fast. I could do nothing wrong. At the end of each passage, I paused, tense, afraid to start the next, fearing like a gambler that luck must turn and the pile be lost. Bit by bit, minute by minute, the thing came into being. There were no difficulties. The intricate multiplicity of light and color became a whole. So this goes back to that other idea of the idea of something being partially there. And but this is the one thing in the in the in the passage that is complete. That's whole. Um, the, I love that idea of the intricate multiplicity of light and color became a whole. I love that phrase. The yeah. right color was where I wanted it on the palette. Each brush stroke, as soon as it was complete, seemed to have been there always. And then Cordelia comes in and wants to watch. Yes, if you don't talk, he says. So as he's working, the light comes into the window and it matches up with the color. And like as the light's flowing into the window, his eyes are opened and his vision becomes clear. And so what he's what he know what he wants to create comes into focus a little bit. But the light comes in the window and it's kind of the opposite of what's happening in the chapel where the light's going out, right? And so as the light comes in the window and it combines with the colors, it becomes a whole. So we've been talking about the idea of you know, things being partial in this chapter. Mm-hmm. But here's the mm-hmm. one thing that is complete, that's whole. And it's the combination of the light from the outside coming in through the window, combining with his, the colors that he's able to create that creates this whole. Um, and it creates, you know, something complete, you know, th- something of a complete artwork, um, which is then what leads into the discussion that he has with Cordelia. And, um, right. and then you get this whole discussion where we, where Cordelia's faith, which we haven't talked about yet, is sort of, comes into focus as well but anyway uh we just had some tech problems a second ago and dad you asked you were going to ask a question what was the question you were going to ask well i had two but then but angelina had a comment that okay. i thought was worth making first well it, it's very similar to what you just said so it's it's the light that allows him to see the whole of all the little bits and pieces but then in that scene the light starts to fade and he's in the shadow and he can't see anymore mm. and then that leads into huh. cordelia saying the light has left so mm-hmm. we we were getting the big transcendent metaphor there right you literally need light to see and now the spiritual light is gone and they can't see you can't see without it. I'll tell you, the light that's gone, the light of hope in my soul that I could ever write anything anywhere near as good as this has gone out. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we talk about this, I'm just more and more impressed. Man, is this other stuff this good? As an aside. The no, no, this is his best. This is his best. But it, but this is a masterpiece. This is truly a masterpiece. And, and, and see, here, here, here might be, 
in a in a ser- series of this was my question. So now we're getting into what's that called? Infinite regression. <laughs> this was the question I had: is is the whole book all about setting perspective? Did you say setting or studying perspective? Setting, setting. Okay. Well, what do you so mean? Here's the, here's the opening of the paragraph. I had the perspective set. Ah. Uh-huh. End of paragraph. Each brushstroke seemed to have been there always. Okay. Is that just? Is that just? Is that creation? Is that art? Is that what he's telling us? Is that? Is that the spiritual and the artistic have this alignment that we have to catch on to, and that the key to everything is perspective? Well, or am okay. I am I hypersimplifying? Can we go to the last? It sure, sure seems like that. Can we go to the last paragraph or the last page of the chapter? Um, because he and Cordelia talk for a while. They talk about the things that we were just talking about earlier. You know where he she describes her mom as a saint, saintly, but not a saint, and so forth. But then um, that paragraph that begins with but I had no patience with this convent chatter. Mm-hmm. I so, love that. So he, yeah, so it goes, I had no patience with this convent chatter. I had felt the brush take life in my hand that afternoon. I had had my finger in the great succulent pie of creation. I was a man of the Renaissance that evening, of Browning's Renaissance. I, who had walked the streets of Rome in Genoa vel- uh, velvet and had seen the stars through Galileo's tube, spurned the friars with their dusty tomes and their sunken jealous eyes and their crabbed hair-splitting speech. You'll fall in love, I said. Oh, I pray not. So this is Cordelia. I say, do you think I could have another of those scrumptious meringues? Um, <laughs> she's the meringues is enough love for her, right? Um, but that that, that chap that paragraph there about him having the brush take life in his hand that afternoon and having a piece of the great succulent pile of creation speaks to what you're saying, doesn't it? Even if his even it if does, he doesn't absolutely. understand, like he doesn't understand what's actually happening. Um, he thinks he, he at the time he thought of, he's thinking of himself in a different way than what's actually happening with inside him. I think it's it's his it's his glory and his shame, right? I he's Jack Horner in a corner putting his thumb in the pie. Right? He's 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 enjoying the great succulent pie of creation for himself. Okay, but but he's a Renaissance man. But notice he refers to a 19th century poet mm-hmm. to describe yes. what kind of Renaissance man he is. Yeah, I thought that and this was is really an English odd. poet. Mm-hmm. Well, he, see, the Renaissance is complex, right? Mm-hmm. And this is my this is my suspicion: is that he's not a Petrarchian Renaissance figure. He's not Michelangelo. He's not he's not any devout form of Renaissance. He's a humanistic, mm-hmm. polite. Anglican-ish form of Renaissance man. He's a Browning Renaissance man, and the, and his glory is what he can see because of his art. His the the patterning of his thinking that artistry brings to him is correct because we live in a creation. We live in a work of art, right? So if we're going to understand it, we have to think artistically, not if I can dare say this, not scientifically. We don't live in a scientific experiment. We live in a creation. So to know it, we have to think artistically, not ultimately scientifically. And that's part of what he's getting at. But he hasn't, but he's thinking artistically, but there's still no flame in the tabernacle, right? He's still thinking of the friars having dusty tomes and sunken jealous eyes. So all, so all he can imagine for Cordelia, and think of the irony, all he can imagine for Cordelia is, 
instead of having a vocation as a nun, which is what she'd been talking about, he says there, you'll fall in love. The irony is he then falls in love with her sister, which leads to his conversion. Well, since we've just given away the whole book, I might as well not talk about it anymore. <laughs> um, hey, Tim. I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say what I just said. Everybody ignore that. Um, <laughs> or what? <laughs> hey, Tim. You have been the silent one this week, and I want to hear from you. But before we do, we do have a telegram that we need to we need to touch a on. Telegram? Here. What do you mean? Yeah, well, so Graham got in touch. He just wants us to make sure to promote Angelina's No Cersei Academy course. Uh, Tim, would you like to hear about this? I do. Tell me about it. Okay, so <laughs> it's called Jericho's Walls, Projection and Power. Learn how you guys do this respectfully? Lear- Jericho's Walls, Projection and Power. Learn how your voice can be your most powerful tool in the classroom. But he wants to make sure that you know that the students know that they have to sign a waiver before they can, before they can take the class. <laughs> For their so. hearing loss? Yeah, so that's Jericho's Walls, Projection and Power. Learn how your voice can be your most powerful tool in the classroom. And if you head over to our website, I'm sure you can find more information about I that course somewhere. I actually teach that class now. That sounds <laughs> I, I want to take it. I want to take it. <laughs> Although Tim might be better equipped to teach about projection and all that than me. But you know what's funny? You should is co-teach that class. About three years ago, I took a class that was entirely—it wasn't even a class. It was just a one-on-one tutorial with my friend John, who's the head of the theater department at the University of Oregon, and it was all about like tying the maximum sound to emotion it basically it's the class that that graham wants uh angelina to do (laughs) so okay anyway back to the book now um now that graham interrupted us um (laughs) always so tim we need to hear from you left it we've ignored sebastian in his hospital bed i know i'm eager to get back there okay okay before we get back there i want to have i want tim's thoughts on Cordelia and this Father Brown passage. Yes. Oh, you read my mind. I was like, please don't um, leave this unsaid. What page is this on? 220. 220. So we need you to read for us, Tim, and then we need you to comment. This is right after the Good Friday thing. This is her yeah. next thing about God doesn't let you go for long. So, so, so um, the whole paragraph after still trying to convert me, Cordelia? Yes. yes. So he says, yeah. she, he says, are you still trying to convert me, Cordelia? And then, and then she responds in her wisdom. Thusly. Oh no. Oh no, that's all over too. Do you know what Papa said when he became a Catholic? Mummy told me once. He said to her, You have brought back my family to the faith of their ancestors. Pompous, you know. It takes people different ways. Anyhow, the family haven't been very constant, have they? Uh, there's him gone and Sebastian gone and Julia gone, but God won't let them but God won't let them go for long, you know. I wonder if you remember the story that mommy read us the evening Sebastian first got drunk. I mean, the bad evening. Father Brown said something like, I caught him, the thief, with an unseen hook and an invisible line, which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world and to still bring back, bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Mm. So good. Which is the title of book two, which we're about right. to enter on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the twitch upon a twitch yeah. upon the thread twitch. is. Uh. I'm thinking, David. Well, I'm. It seems like of all the characters in the book thus far, even perhaps more so than Lady Marchmain, Cordelia has this 
has a pretty rich faith and maybe it's yeah, this faith of a child type thing um although she seems pretty insightful for 15 well she does too at some point there's a light right so I, I didn't mean, remember like, that mom was reading Chesterton, but I'm Father Brown. This is what we're talking about, right? She's reading Chesterton. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and I, yeah, she that is mentioned back then. Yeah, I didn't remember that. Of course, he's a Catholic writer, so we're getting that again. Um, what? So it's about some. It's about Father Brown catching a thief, right, with an unseen hook and invisible line, which mm-hmm. is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world and still bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Um. talk about that no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> david i'm not i'm not helping you very much um i'm not helping you very much um i agree cordelia is she does not just have an inner fire but she's she has folks it in a way that seems to be really giving her an acute sense of wisdom that is really far beyond her years. I've, I've wondered a lot about her name, why the name Cordelia. I mean, it doesn't seem the like... Faithful, Cordelia is the faithful child yeah. in King Lear, right? Yeah, she is. Um, yeah, she seems to be the virtuous Lear's part one. of the backdrop of this story. Why do I you think so? I can see that. I can see that. Like Actually, the, I was going to ask if you guys thought that Dante, if this is Dante and in, in, in Out of Order... But but he he refers to Lear later on, so I'll just leave it at that for now. Hmm. Something to watch out for. That's what they call a tease in the biz. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I find myself with Waugh leaning forward during all of the dialogue, and so, I lean so forward on the dialogue that then I'll continue reading when the plot points are kind of hashed out in between the dialogue, and I found myself missing things. So I completely missed. Lady Marchmaid's death until they were talking about it afterwards, and I had to back up and read kind of like the plot points. Yeah, so I was death. actually going to mention, I was going to ask you guys about that because it she's sick, and then it, later on he's like, we talked about, uh, we discussed her death, which oh, it had, oh by the way, I got a telegram about that 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 had happened. What, yeah, why why does that? First of all, why do you believe that the death happens off screen, so to speak, and mm. why is it referenced? Only in passing, like the actual occasion of it. Only in passing. This is this was a it's a it's a super interesting narrative choice that is sort it of really in is. line with the way a lot of this book has been presented, and it's going to be kind of um, flipped on its head. Haunting and elusive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be flipped on its head later in the book. Well, there's another tease for you. But um, why in this case, given given the the, the looming figure that has been Lady Marchman, why? Right. Does Wa give us so little about her death and even what it has meant to everyone? It's well, anticlimactic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. And I wonder... Look at the bottom of page 220. It says, we scarcely mentioned her mother. And then he re- he writes the part that they did mention, but it wasn't a big part of the conversation. Right. Hmm. In fact, at the end of the whole thing, well, during it, she, she says, oh, I'm quite serious. I've thought about it a lot. It seems to explain poor mommy. Then this odd child tucked into her dinner with renewed relish. I mean, she, it's not interfering with her eating. <laughs> That's true. It's a very strange relationship everybody has with her. You know what I was thinking is that if the camera, you mentioned, you know, the death happens off 
screen, mm-hmm. David. That's the phrase that you use. Mm-hmm. If the death happened on screen and the camera focuses on Lady Marchmain, the effect upon the reader would be this is a moment this is a climactic moment we must pay attention the voice mm-hmm. of god is going to speak through lady marchman <laughs> and i think it would be so disruptive to the overall purposes of the book that wah i mean it's really bold you're going to leave the most mysterious and in some way kind of like the keystone figure of the book she dies and she dies away from everyone's view. She dies okay. away at least I, from, the, from the reader's view. Okay, yeah, I totally agree with that. I get that. Um, I think I can, like mentally, I can, I can process what you're saying, and I, and I agree with it. But what, I have a, what I'm really curious about, I'm not like having a hard time with that, I wouldn't say that, but I'm curious about the way he says it. It's not even, there's not even a whole paragraph about, oh, she died on this cool rainy day and mm-hmm. so forth. You know, it's on 215. He's with Sebastian. And it says, on my last afternoon, I said, Sebastian, now your mother's dead. And we get this M dash for the news had reached us that morning. Do you think of, and, you know, then back to his conversation with, with uh, Sebastian, do you think of going back to England? I mean, it, it doesn't even get a sentence. It's just a, an aside yeah. in the middle of a piece of dialogue. It's not even, I mean, it is such a parenthetical that he just drops it in. Oh yeah. But, Oh, I met, I should probably have told everyone reading this. She did die. I mean, it, it's, it's not even that it's off screen. It's that he attends to it so little that it doesn't even have its own sentence. He's, he's okay, almost laboring it, to hide. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Could it be so simple and unobtrusive that you guys are failing to notice it? <laughs> See, this, this is, that, that's pretty much what I was going to say. Like, I'm wondering if, if what, well, okay, so it looks for a second there at the beginning of this chapter, right? Lady Marchman on her deathbed, Sebastian come home. You start to think you know what this moment's going to be, right? Sebastian's going to come home. There's going to be this reconciliation. This is, yeah, exactly. It's going to be the turning point in Sebastian's life. But it's not a turning point in Sebastian's just life, right? It's just, yeah. it's just an aside. And, and I'm wondering if while I'm saying that the the really significant moments in life are sort of simple and unobtrusive, you don't realize them in the moment. I mean, that's kind of what Charles is saying later on. He's like, he told me this key to unlocking the mystery that is Sebastian, and I didn't even realize it at the time. Like, that's what life is like, just these unfolding events and and what you think is going to be life-changing moments are often not. It's often something totally unexpected. So, so I'm that, wondering if that's part of it. That, that Sebastian's not, it's not a meaningful moment in terms of Sebastian's character's evolution. He dismisses it. Does he? he, he I mean, is he, that how you read I that? Mean, he has a moment of silence, but he doesn't, uh, well, not dismisses. He has a moment. What page did you say it's on? 215. He says it would be oh, love. It, he says, it would be lovely in some ways. He said, but do you think Kurt would like it? And then Charles says, "For God's sake, I do you. You don't mean to spend your life with Kurt, do you?" And he says, "I don't know. He right, seems so to meant to spend it with me." About Kurt, not his mother. Mm-hmm. But isn't that what isn't isn't him thinking about Kurt in of itself part of the process of his change? Isn't that what the 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 monk says? Yes. Yes. I think so. You know, it's rather a pleasant change when all your life you've you've had people looking after you to have someone to look after yourself. Only, of course, it has to be someone pretty hopeless to need looking after by me. 
right? So even Charles, think of it. Don't you feel like Charles is being rejected there too? What are you doing here? He says to Charles. Yeah, that was not much of a greeting. And Kurt is kind and, of the and it's been. Keep in mind, it's been at least a year or two. Hmm. This is another one of those things that Tim, that Tim and I talk about. Um, the idea of like how you would direct an actor to read a line. That line about mm-hmm. um, what are you doing here is is one of those lines that without stage direction by the yeah. playwright can mean many different things. Like that's very you, true. There's a lot. Like I don't I don't believe Wa tells us how he says it. There, he does italicize you. He does it, and that's so. That's why I read it. Like, what are you doing here? Let's try multiple readings of that line. As long as you italicize the you. As long as you italicize, yeah, you got to hit the you, but like, you can read it still in multiple different ways. Sure. Go for it. All right, let's hear it. What are you doing here? Uh, uh, no, you I, can't I hit the you. Yeah. Cheater, cheater. But, I mean, you, can, you can read it, you can emphasize the you with multiple, with different levels of excitement. What are you doing here, Charles? That's a very different than the kind of condemnatory. What are you doing here? What are you not, doing here? Yeah. Or, or you can you can also like you can also read the the you in that you sort of like um, you use the word condemnatory. You can read it this similarly without it being accusatory. You know. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean it to be accusatory. I mean it to be. I mean it to be. Although I suspect it is because for Sebastian, anything in his past is always an accusation. But, but I think that. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Charles goes out of his way immediately thereafter to to tell us how low Sebastian is at this point. Mm. Like he's offering sympathy to him. He's emaciated, um, and he's ill, and you know he can barely move. And and Charles goes out of his way to tell us that right away, like to to offer you know some sort of an excuse for for Sebastian, I suppose. Charles loves Sebastian. Absolutely, he always does. And, and he explains why, I think, in the next chapter, so I won't go into it, except that Sebastian brought Charles to life, which is why we love people. If they kill us, we don't like them. If they make us live, we do. And But everybody feels like, apparently, Sebastian anyway, feels like Lady Marchman was killing him, mm-hmm. so he didn't like her. And so when he sees Charles, Charles now has become an advocate for Lady Marchman. Mm-hmm. And just like Sebastian, he's there. afraid that she would be or that Charles would kind of fall into her clutches earlier in the book. And, and frankly, the way Sebastian maneuvers, everybody earlier, Antoine said, Anthony, whatever Blanche said that, um, um, Sebastian has a way of making everybody of appearing like he's being led on. Right. But, but really he's leading people on. Mm. And I think that's very, I think that's true. I think Sebastian is, um, I think he's a very disordered soul. And that's what, that's what we're supposed to see him as. One of the things that's interesting to me uh, that's so hard about this book is that you aren't supposed to like these characters. Okay, Claudia, I mean, Cordelia, yeah, sure, she's, she's lovable. But you're not supposed to look at Charles and go, what a nice guy, Sebastian, what a nice guy. These are, these are broken, distorted people. And they're the ones who are going to experience grace, and that's absolutely crucial. That's why, for example, the argument about are Sebastian and Charles gay? And some people, they think if they're gay, then they can't really read it. Well, I guess 
that wasn't important to Wa in terms of these characters in this book. But gay people love this book. It's very popular among um, homosexual communities because it reflects apparently something that they're very sympathetic to. And it, it has a homoeroticism to it that, to me, I look at it and say, if that's the case, and what Wa's telling us is those people are savable. Those people, right? <laughs> so that's what he's trying to get at, is there aren't any of those people. We're, 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 we're all broken, unlikable people. <laughs> and that's where the grace is coming. And so at this very depth that Sebastian reaches in Fez, so, so far down that he has to go into this ancient city and he's an alcoholic in a hospital that is littered, littered with people in the hallways who are, you know, the locals who can't afford any medical care and are just dying in the hallways. And Charles has to stumble over them because he can, because he's English and he can get to Sebastian in this back room of this, this North African hospital. And when he gets there, Sebastian has probably, probably a gay lover back at his place that who he's taking care of. And that's the turning point for him. Finally, there's somebody he can care for. Oh, that's, that's the reach of grace. That's the twitch on the thread. Maybe Sebastian. Yeah. Well, the thread can always be twitched. <laughs> that's the point of right. the thread. Right. And you, and, you, and know. you don't know when it is either. Right. Cause you know, it's an right. invisible thread. Well, and, and to the, to the, to the, to the monk, it is it is clear to the monk that Sebastian caring for someone else is deeply meaningful. He calls him a Samaritan. He recognizes it. And yeah. immediately, to me, the whole I asked about a key line, and for me, the key line of the entire chapter is when um, it, he uh, the monk is telling, um, I think it's the monk, the monk is telling Charles, Charles. Yeah, he says, "Lord Flight found um, mm -hmm. Kurt." He says he found him starving in Tangier and took him in and gave him a home, a real Samaritan. And then Charles says, and I, this Charles sentence is so is, jaded, but it's this, the, the whole thing, what Wa does here is so fascinating to me. He says, Charles says, poor, simple monk. I thought poor booby, God forgive me. But so speaking oh, of pers so that's multiple levels multiple, of perspective, exactly. Right there. So at the right. time he says, at the time right. I thought poor, simple monk. And then he says, you know, the older Charles, older, older Charles years later, the narrator Charles says, God forgive me for thinking that. Um, and right. he, he, he repeats he, it on the next page. Too. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> Poor simple monk. Poor simple monk for daring to think that Sebastian, you know, that Sebastian caring for someone else is meaningful. And like Charles's eyes have not been opened to that, that kind of, how that kind of thing could be meaningful or can mean something or can change someone or can be redeeming or however you want to put it. It's so interesting, all these levels of perspective, you know, the more that I think about it, the more that I'm impressed with all the levels of implications. And one of the things I'm thinking about right now is everybody's conversion story is a story of perspective, too, because when you're mm. in the broken state, you know, the unconverted state, you don't have a sense that God is nearby and he's watching you and he's going to call you to him when he's ready or that he's weaving all these circumstances in your life to bring you. Know, you, you just threads. feel. Well, yeah, you just feel broken and you're running and you're and you're making a mess and you're destroying yourself. But then after the conversion, you look back, right? All of us have that. Mm -hmm. I have that. Mm -hmm. You look back and you think, oh no, he was there. God was there the whole time. I was never was never away from God, and He was crafting all of this. And so, 
Waugh is doing that with the story, but and, and he keeps doing it by letting the future come into the past, like that moment, God forgive me. If you're closely reading, then you know, okay, Charles is going to come to a moment where he's going to look back on this and see it very differently. Something is happening in his life as well. It's just, and it's it just is, so, so interesting. I'm fascinated by the fact that he doesn't say... Um, well, I was stupid to think that, but he actually says the words, God forgive me. Like it's this, yeah. Lord, it's this Lord have mercy. Yeah. It's this, it's, it's a sort of repentance as if later on he's, it's like when we think of back, you know, as you get older, you gain, here's the word again, you gain perspective, perspective. or you, you gain wisdom. Yes. You look back at yes. your past mistakes, your past foibles of varying degrees of, you know, badness, so to speak. Um, and you think, you know, you know you basically have to ask God to forgive you for making such a stupid mistake or interacting with someone in the way that you did or thinking of someone mm-hmm. the way that you did or not showing charity or love to someone. And so you say that, you know, you ask for forgiveness, you say, God, forgive me. You say, Lord, have mercy, whatever it is. And he, it's, that's a very purposeful choice of words there. He's not just, man, what, yeah, very a, much so. what an idiot I was, but it's actually God, forgive me. Exclamation that's point, which is not right. a, the connotation being, this wasn't just me being naive and stupid. This was me sinning. This was, was sinning. Wrong. This Fence for me to think this way. It's and, and you can imagine one him, of the things that's. Go ahead, David. Well, I just wanted to say, I, I don't. I, I speaking of not being an accident, the the monk calling Sebastian a Samaritan, because in some ways right. I I feel like maybe what Charles is doing is he's looking, and so many other people are looking at Sebastian like you know in the parable, like the like the Jewish people might have looked at a Samaritan. Um, as some sort of mm, lower class, unclean. Yeah, yeah unclean is a great word given the Sebastian connotation. And the doctor basically treats Sebastian as, mm-hmm. as inconvenient. Yeah, like the Pharisee, like the person who's walking Definitely. by the 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 wounded man on the side of the road. Who, by the way, always easy is the man crippled or something like that in the Good Samaritan? Because he's beaten up. He's beaten, he's beaten up. up. Yeah, he's beaten up, and Kurt's you know got this wounded, this wounded foot and all that. Mm. He's he mm. he it's self inflicted. That's interesting, but he is beaten up. And Sebastian is also self-inflicted. How many of our wounds are self-inflicted? Right, right. Yeah. I love this idea of the doctor as the Pharisee because he's so defensive, right, about his unwillingness to help Sebastian. Like, I can't, I can't help it. I can't keep him from drinking. I'm not the police warden here. Uh, this isn't a home for drunks. You know, it's just not my very job. defensive. Not my job. Not my job. This is somebody else. Just that, that's an, that's to me, really to me, we're 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 t- we're getting on something so key to the book, but co- so key to life. Paul talks about how he who is wise, the, here, sorry, how the spiritual man judges everything, but he's not judged by anybody. And I think what he means by that is that the spiritual man has the right perspective on everything, but nobody understands him because they don't understand what he's doing. And one of the things that Jesus said that has often puzzled me is he treats folly or foolishness as an evil, as though, you know, he, he, he doesn't see it as something that couldn't be prevented. Um, we're, we're punished for being foolish. And what that's about is perspective. When we, when we look at Sebastian in this book, when we look at Charles and we look at Julia and we look at, and we look at I mean, what does everybody think of Kurt? Everybody dislikes him, and Sebastian knows this. Nobody likes him. He says mm-hmm. to Charles, okay. but Jesus does to get Sunday school. And the thing about Sebastian that, that I think he's driving home for us is that you, we can't view a person like Sebastian and we all know people, something like Sebastian. We can't, we all have Sebastian within us. We can't view that morally. Ultimately 
ultimately we have to see it spiritually. And the fact is that Sebastian has something going on deeper than that person who is good and who is good for society and who is making society operate efficiently and who pleases the teacher in the classroom. We all have, you know, some degree of Sebastians in our classroom who mess up the, the, the lesson for us or who don't let us get through what we're trying to get through. And if we're modern, our response to that is, well, I'm not here to, to look after him. I'm not here to do what was the remittance cases. Was that the term? That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to get my lessons taught. Mm-hmm. And so that child, that Sebastian, he's just a mess, but the spiritual and my very unspiritual understanding of it, the spiritual person can't look at a person like that because then you're going to look at yourself like that and you're going to loathe yourself because there's so much Sebastian in you. That's not the only reason, but that's one reason we, we don't, we don't have the right perspective on what a human being is and how and why people sin. We think we understand it. We think that through behaviorism, through, through behavioral mechanisms, we can, reconstruct people's behaviors and make them fit the classroom better. I mean, Tim, you know, this, you get, you get really interesting students in, in yeah. your school, yeah. more Sebastian driven, you know, these people mess our schools up. So what do you do with them? <laughs> What's the spiritual Send thing them to, to Morocco? <laughs> that hey. might be exactly what has to happen, right? Well, we, we are um, about to hit the point where our file size is going to be too big to upload. Um, so, do it again. so I want to hear uh, some final thoughts from Tim, because I feel like he got the, the shorter straw of any of us here. So um, I agree. So Tim, give us, your fi- argue with him. <laughs> give us your final thoughts. And then we've got to go because our file type's not going to, we're not going to be able to upload this file and people's phones are going to explode as they're listening. Right. I missed the thing upon my reading this chapter. I missed the thing that David and excuse me, that Andrew and then later Angelina pointed out the kind of um, the fire going out, the significance of the fire going out within the chapel. I kind of just glazed over that. And I feel like what a bad close reader I am. (laughs) (laughs) But now I got it. Thanks to my friends. Now I got it. Well, you know, it just takes a little help, right, from your friends. It just takes there a little help. Part of a close read is a discussion. Absolutely. Right. Well, uh, thanks to uh, all three of you for joining Close Reads this week for close for close reading. I hope you guys have a great time at your July first slash Independence Day celebration. Yeah, our Fourth of July extravaganza, which is happening on July first this year. Because it's a Saturday and we wanted to try and see how that works for people. Right. Um, yeah, if you um, you know, are listening to this and you joined us, then I hope you had a good time. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> mo- this will go up on Monday. So, you know. I'm sure you had a good time. <laughs> um, it was great. David, I had so much Rachel fun. Rachel again? Pardon? David, do we have time to mention well, Rachel I was, again? I was going to say, yeah. Um, before we go, I want to mention our friend Rachel McClure. Uh, I mentioned it last week. She is headed to Uganda in uh, a couple of weeks now, I think mid-July, 13th or something like that, uh, to join um, the Amazma Ministries there. She's going to be doing some mission teaching. And we are uh, going to be doing some fundraising for her. She needs um, $2,000 a month for two years. Uh, she's raised, I think, getting you know, over $1,500 or something like that at this point. And um, we're going to match $250 a month. So we're looking to see if 
you know, there are those of you out there who will be willing to contribute um, on a monthly basis, you know, even just a little bit every month to help her with her expenses. Um, she's going to be teaching children who have been, in many cases, um, their parents have basically brought them to an orphanage and said, can you keep our children? So this ministry mm. is trying to say, uh, trying to help the, these families. They're not trying to take the children from them. They're trying to be, enable the parents to keep their children by offering them right. an education and food and clothing so that these children can then return to their communities, educated, you know, fed and clothed to, to help grow those communities and help, you know, provide the resources for those communities. And so, um, it's not like they're trying to take those kids out and then bring them to America or something like that, but they're trying to feed the, the, the these villages and, and towns and communities that are already existing there. Um, and there's a classical school there. Um, I had the headmaster there is a friend of a friend of Cersei, and so they're doing some really good work. So if you are up for helping, you can uh, go to our website. You can click the donate tab, and um, under the section where it says funds, you can choose the Amazama Missions Fund, the Amazama Missions Fund, and um, and that would that's where you can contribute. Um, even five dollars a month will go a long way over the course of two years to helping her reach the the money that she needs to to fly over there in a couple of weeks. Um, David, can we put the link on the close reads? Facebook yeah, I'll, do, I'll put thread. that. Yeah, I'll put that on the thread, and I'll put that on, on, on the um, on the the post on the website as well, and in the iTunes description. So, um, and, and I just have to say this briefly that I know I know Rachel from years now of working with her, teaching her, interacting with her family, and she is one of the most uniquely qualified people to do this. She's she not anybody, not just anybody can do what she's trying to do. And if people are looking for a ministry that they can be confident that, that the people doing it are able to do what they're being called to do, Rachel is one of those people. She's one of my favorite people in the world, and she's going to do great things in Africa in the next couple of years. Okay. Well, um, with that, um, I, we've already done final thoughts. You know, I need to say thank you again to Scully Academy um, and Classical Academic Press for sponsoring. If you want to learn more about Tim's classes, head over to ScullyAcademy.com. And like I said, his mug is plastered on the front page last I checked. Um, I think it still is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, I guess that's it. I guess that's it for another episode of Close Reads. We will be back next week as we talk about chapter, well, I guess part two, chapter one, or part three, chapter one, depending on which edition you have. Um, but for Angelina Stanford, for Andrew Kern, and for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We look forward to talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.